This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello, and welcome to season four of the Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first three seasons, there's plenty of content for you if you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries, or if you're training to be a lawyer. You'll also meet some amazing local charities and learn about the work they do. You can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode of our podcast, The Legal Lounge, corporate solicitors Gronje Walters and Mark Tromans talk about the importance of putting a shareholders agreement in place at the outset of a new business partnership whilst everyone is getting on and feeling positive. They explain the difference between a director and a shareholder and how a shareholders agreement can detail how a shareholder can be part of the management of the business. Hi, I'm Mark. Uh, I'm here with uh, Gronje Walters. Today we're going to talk about shareholders agreements and some of the uh, common themes that tend to come up with that. So we've put together quite a few shareholders agreements for businesses between us. Most of the time a client will say that they've been told that they should have a shareholders agreement usually by their accountants and because it's a good idea particularly when it comes to succession planning but often the client doesn't have the full picture about the benefits of a shareholders agreement. We're going to address some of those common questions today aren't we and particularly some of the discussion points that usually tend to arise when when people come to us. I mean there's so many businesses in the UK I think a lot of people within those businesses got into it with people that they know and trust, their friends, their family. And I think there's there's so much to do with getting the business off the ground in those early days in particular that things like managing the relationship between the shareholders isn't really given much priority. Um, at the end of the day, you've gone into business with someone that you trust. You wouldn't necessarily be thinking about what's going to happen if, no, if we fall and, out. and they're trying to get on with the business of running the business and don't want to be distracted by the formalities around the shareholders and that relationship. But, you know, the shareholders agreement, such a hugely valuable tool. It can create certainty amongst the parties. And I always say to people, you know, much better to agree this kind of thing now while everyone's getting along because... If you haven't got something in place and you do fall out, you can bet your bottom dollar that you're not going to be able to agree a way forward when when you're at each other's throats. When you actually need it, exactly. And I suppose one of the advantages of the shareholders agreement is sitting down and actually setting the scene for how you expect the business to be run. Um, especially if you are dealing with friends and family where you're you're not having those kind of formal conversations regularly, but it is a benefit to kind of just get your thoughts in order and um, and, and and put something in writing and agree the plan. Yeah, and then you've got a reference point then in the future you can keep coming back to. I suppose one of the key questions that people talk to us about is what's the difference between a director and a shareholder? And a lot of people believe that they're one and the same thing. And whilst for a corporate lawyer, it's quite a basic and quite a, quite an easy question to answer for, for everyone else. What, what is the answer? A lot of the time people think that director and shareholder are quite interchangeable, don't they? And they particularly as a shareholder, you'd think that, well, I own the business. I, I've certainly got rights to, to have a say in the managing of the day to day, but that's not the case a shareholder and a director are very very distinct roles yet of course you might find that in small and medium-sized companies the director and the shareholder are 
one and the same person a lot of the time. But a shareholder is someone that owns shares in a company. They own a piece of that company, don't they? Um, whereas a director will run the company, they'll manage the company for the shareholders, uh, essentially. In carrying out that role, managing the company, the director's going to be subject to various fiduciary duties to act in the best interest of the company, for example. But your shareholder isn't necessarily going to be subject to those fiduciary duties. Some people might be surprised to know that as a shareholder, you've actually got limited say in in the day-to-day running Mm. of the business, particularly when it comes to decision-making. That's probably why the directors are subject to those fiduciary duties, because they've got all this power to make decisions. One thing that a shareholders' agreement can do, it can give the shareholders some additional rights and obligations that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise get from the articles. One thing that is often asked is, um, and I get this um, from shareholders, saying, I haven't been provided with copies of the accounts or information in relation to the company. Um, I I want that information, please. Um, And the director's saying, I can't have it, or they're not providing it. Does a shareholder automatically have the right to access that information? Not automatically, um, and that's why I think a shareholders agreement is is important because you can get what you might refer to as visitation rights, that kind of thing, so that you can set these things out in agreement to say, look, you're going to provide me as a shareholder with certain pieces of information about the business at reasonable intervals when 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 I ask for it. Yes, or even just the management accounts and statements and and that access to information. And I think that that's one of the key benefits of a shareholders agreement to put that in place. And with the company being a party to the shareholders agreement, then that will oblige the directors to provide that information. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's why a shareholders agreement is a great idea. Another point that's often raised is articles of association. That's the constitution of a company. And some people will say, well, we've got articles of association that kind of dictate how we run the business. Why would we need a shareholders agreement? We'll just, we've got model articles, they'll be fine. Yeah, I get that question uh, a lot too. There's a difference between between the two. I kind of just set out what they are. So the articles of association are compulsory. You've kind of already mentioned that they set out the rules that they govern how the company's going to be run. So they'll deal with things like, you know, appointment and removal of directors, what procedures are we going to follow in our meetings, that kind of thing. You talked about the model articles. Well, they're just a, a bog-standard um, document that's prescribed by the Companies Act. You can have model articles. They kind of just deal with the basics. But there are some alternatives. You can have entirely bespoke articles if you want to, or you can have a hybrid document that takes those model articles as a starting point and then makes certain bespoke amendments depending on the requirements of the company. Where a shareholders agreement differs is that it, it's a private agreement between individual shareholders. Um, it's not a publicly available document like your articles of association would be. Now, with a shareholders agreement, what the parties are doing is they're coming together and they're saying, look, we've got, we've got these articles of association that give us the basics of how to run the business, um, but we as shareholders are going to agree to be bound by some additional rules um, give ourselves some additional obligations uh, that the articles don't necessarily give us. Is there any particular areas where the articles would be lacking as a constitutional document? Well, yes, certainly. I mean, they're not going to deal with things like, you know, what happens if someone wants to transfer their shares 
uh, to somebody else and you don't want them to do that, the shareholders agreement can cater for that. The model articles of association don't deal with transfer of shares at all. So actually, if you receive shares in a company that has model articles, there is nothing stopping you from transferring your shares to anyone. And I think that that's that's probably a key concern and that you've certainly got to think about that, having some restriction on the transfer of shares, because when you grant shares to a shareholder, you want to ensure that actually they're not going to transfer them on without your consent. So we've talked about the general overall benefits of a shareholders agreement, but what are the specifics? How specifically can the shareholders agreement help? Well, there's a few things that you can include within a shareholders agreement. Um, probably one of the most important being in relation to disputes and, and if they if they arise. If there is a falling out, then your agreement can provide a framework for, for dispute resolution. People don't go looking to cause trouble, but, uh, but disputes do happen. And your shareholders agreement can try to cater for common disputes that may arise. You can't cater for every kind of dispute because you couldn't possibly know when a dispute is going to arise. But the, the idea is that if you've got this framework that you can follow, then you can hopefully try to resolve a dispute before you go all the way down the line and get the courts involved. It's going to save you a lot of time and money. I've seen recently one of my provisions for um, dispute resolution in a shareholders agreement, the Russian roulette provision, which is, is quite a fun name for a dispute resolution procedure. One of the other commonly talked about mechanisms for dispute resolution is the um, Texas shootout. So with the Russian roulette, which it's quite it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Basically, if you're falling out, um, you offer to purchase the other party's shares and you have to put a price on that. And then the other party can then say either yes, I will purchase those shares at that price or no. I want you to sell me your shares at that price. It's fair because you have to put forward a price that you'd be willing to accept for the shares. And I think that's quite a good resolution if you if you are going to fall out. Yeah, definitely. The end result is then that if there's only two shareholders in your situation, you're left with just one shareholder who can then go along, take the business in the direction that they want it to go in. Exactly. And then the Texas shootout, so that's a bit more... Um, interesting that's the one where you start off in that process it's where both parties want to purchase the shares they want to own the the company outright and therefore it it results in some sealed bids going forward and the highest the highest bidder wins so it's still very useful to have that type of mechanism within the shareholders agreement for that fallout the other point that's very useful to have in the shareholders agreement the other kind of area that um, many people have concerns about is with share transfers so we've talked a bit about this and what there's the kind of common approach to share transfers and that would be the preemption procedure and that's where if you wish to transfer your shares in the company, you have to first offer them to the other shareholders in line with their percentage holdings. Now, there are 
areas which vary from that or, or, or where it can it can be excluded transfers that can be excluded from having to go through that preemption procedure and they're actually quite useful some of which would be the permitted transfers yeah well your preemption procedure is quite a bureaucratic process isn't it there's, yes. there's quite yes. a few steps to it if you wanted to transfer your shares to you know, a permitted transferee your shareholders agreement can can recognise that and they can say well you don't need to go through that bureaucratic process if you wanted to transfer your shares to to your spouse or to your children um, it can be certain tax advantages to doing that you take advantage of your spouse's personal allowance for, for dividend income for example so you might say well I want to give my spouse a handful of shares so that when we declare dividends we're using their their personal allowance when you're doing that, though, you'll need to think about compulsory transfer provisions because if you're giving shares to a spouse, for example, what happens if you later get divorced? And I suppose if you've got the permitted transfer provisions, if they cease to be a member of the family, then they there can be obligations for those shares to just automatically revert to the original shareholder. And, and that's how you would deal with that. Another type of permitted transferee is companies in a group. And so you're able to transfer to other entities within the group. Again, that could be for tax reasons or many other reasons but then if that company ever were to leave the group then it would automatically revert to the original shareholder so that's the permitted transferees and you've touched on then compulsory transfers and that's possibly one of the most controversial aspects of the Articles of Association because there is one which is controversial and that's if there was employee shareholders who received their shares by virtue of their being an employee and they're kind of putting their time and effort into the company and wanting that to see some reward from that. Talking through that, if that employee wanted to leave the company then You'd want the shares back, wouldn't you? Of course you would. Of course yeah. you would. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if, if someone were to leave the business for, for any reason, really, but yeah, certainly where you've got an, an, an employee leaving, there aren't really many good reasons, are there, for, for someone keeping their shares after they've no, ceased no. involvement with the business. But I think whenever you're talking about compulsory transfers, there's always that key question of, well, yes, you can get the shares back from someone, but... At what price? At what price? <laughs> you're not saying that you're not entitled to realise the value for your shares just because we're taking them back from you. What you're saying is that you'll only get that value in, in certain circumstances. Um, and, and this is where you can tie in what we call good and bad lever provisions. So your agreement will set out what is a good lever, what is a bad lever. Now, a good lever is typically someone who, who dies, um, someone who becomes incapacitated. Retirement might be mentioned, made redundant or uh, if someone's dismissed but it's later found to be an unfair dismissal. So in those circumstances you can say, look, these are things that you don't really have control over, therefore you're deemed to be a good lever and you can have fair value for your shares and fair value would be determined by a professional valuer. And that's fair market value, so yeah. that's as if, if those shares were going to be sold on the open market, what would they be worth? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But then conversely, your bad lever is pretty much anything else so, <laughs> <laughs> anything that isn't a good lever or that 
the other parties don't agree is a good lever yes will be considered a bad, a bad lever. lever and in those circumstances you can say well you're only going to be entitled to uh, you know, a percentage of fair value or even the nominal value for your shares you know, if you've got shares that are worth a pound each in terms of nominal value you can say that that's all you're going to get for your shares i always think that if nothing else acts as an incentive for people not to not to mess around and misbehave, of course. Yes. Yeah. There's also the time period. Um, if you think about the people who are involved in the business at a level that would mean that they deserve some shares in the company. So they're, they're kind of high, high achievers within the business and, and they're working hard. If, if that person was to leave within a short period of time of them joining, so say uh, three years is often a, a, a point that we say that actually if you leave within three years, you haven't really added that much value to the business, therefore you're a bad leaver and you get par value for your shares. But if you were involved in the business and you'd put 20 years into it um, and and you had participated in the growth of that business and uh, been responsible for a lot of its success, then actually it is right that you would get fair market value for your shares. So that's one, often one of the points is, is that time and how much your time as an employee has given to the growth of the business. Another compulsory transfer event, which is probably the hardest to discuss, is death. Often you'll see death as the compulsory transfer event, which would mean that in the event someone dies, their shareholding, then they are deemed to have issued a transfer notice in respect of their share, which means that they are required to transfer their share rather than their share passing or transmitting via their will. And that's often one that causes much discussion and debate. Somebody dies and their will says, well, first of all, shares shares are an asset like anything else, aren't they? So, you know, your will might say, I want to leave this to my children, I want to leave that to my brother, you know, that kind of thing. You can also stipulate that you want to leave your shares to, to somebody. But... <laughs> The other shareholders, are they going to be happy with that? And what's that going to mean for the business? So I want to leave my shares to my son. Yep, fine. But your son's never worked in this kind of business before. Doesn't have the experience. We would much rather those shares come back to the remaining shareholders so that we can continue yes. the business as yeah. as we've been doing so. And that's often the case in owner-managed businesses. If, if it's a large entity, the ownership of shares and the fact that they've no previous experience in that line of business that doesn't really matter so much does it but in the owner managed businesses this is is key and and you need those people who are really engaged and really know what they're doing to develop the business for the benefit of the members so that's succession i suppose exit arrangements is is another situation so this is just general retirement from business really And again, it goes to the heart of the value that is paid for a retiring shareholder's shares. There are ways that this can be covered because sometimes it could be in the hundreds of thousands. And how can um, either a business or the continuing shareholders, how can they finance that? You've asked a good question there, I think, and I think this is where you can look at, let's put what we call a cross-option arrangement in, backed up by life assurance life assurance indeed yes yeah, so your cross option essentially it's a, it's a set of provisions that gives 
the other parties um, an option to buy your shares in certain circumstances. So we call that a call option. You can use the proceeds from the life policy to get the funds together to be able to pay for those shares. I suppose it's similar to the compulsory transfer provisions that we've mentioned, isn't it? We have the, an option to take your shares off you, but I think where it differs is that it also crosses over with what we call a put option. So if, if the shareholders don't exercise their option to take the shares from that exiting shareholder, the exiting shareholder can actually make them take the shares from them yes. and again using the proceeds from any policy that may have paid out. And that would, in the case of a cross-option agreement on, on which is used on death and the life policy, it would be the personal representatives of, of the deceased who would then be um, enforcing that. The difficulty um, sometimes with that is that some people can't be insured. <laughs> Um, maybe they've been ill in the past and they just can't get that insurance. Um, and what we've done to kind of deal with scenarios in that case is basically manage the payments. And that would be structuring the consideration or the or the purchase price for the shares um, and the payment for that over a number of years, say three to five years on kind of six monthly or even monthly payments, um, which actually gives the um, personal representatives perhaps a, 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 an income, a source of income over the next few years. But um, and it, it's a structured payment. And I think that that's how we get around that uh, in practice. Going on the same theme with share transfers um drag along and tag along that's often something that's seen in a shareholders agreement although i also like to see them in the in the articles of association as well drag along then the first point is that all companies can benefit from from a drag or what we call a statutory drag so the companies that says that if somebody representing 90 percent of the company wants to sell their shares they can drag the minority the, the other 10%. What your shareholders agreement can do is it can lower that threshold. So you can yes. ag- you can agree we want that threshold to be 75%. Yes, and even even 65%. Yeah. So any yeah. anything um, any, anything lower yeah. than than the statutory yes. amount. Yes. Because if if you have like a number of minority shareholders so you can have many shareholders including 20 shareholders holding 1% of shares and so the ability to drag them along in a transfer um would be really helpful wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. Absolutely. So on the other side of that you can have a, a tag right which is a, a a minority shareholder protection. Um, that deals with the circumstance where you do find a buyer who's happy to just take a majority stake rather than the whole company. In those circumstances, your minority shareholders might say, well, not really comfortable with that. We don't know who this person is. We don't want to be forced to work with them yes. going forward. Um, so we have the ability then to put a stop to this sale unless that buyer also offers similar terms to us. to us it's quite powerful but at the same time it is fairly rare that a, a third party would come along and want to um, acquire just a majority interest with a number of minority shareholders decision making is one of the other key protections of a shareholders agreement and those are matters that um, as we discussed earlier uh, a director uh, or the board of directors runs the day-to-day management of the business and so deals with the hiring and firing, the purchasing, the um, the sales and leads all of those roles. One uh, of the 
key protections for shareholders there are the and particularly minority shareholders are reserved matters and these are matters that the directors must discuss and have shareholder consent for before they can make those decisions and this can be to do with increases in expenditure so uh, capital expenditure Uh, lending money, borrowing money, all of those decisions that really affect the financials of the business. On on the decision-making point, and and we mentioned disputes earlier, and I think the reserve matters. Um, I think that can be a great tool for nipping potential disputes in the bud as well. Absolutely. I kind of give an example to people say, look, we agree at the outset, we're going to open a bakery and we're going to run this business as a bakery. And then some of the shareholders say, well, actually, I'm quite good at software let's why don't we start doing some software yeah. um you say well look no we, we agreed that we wouldn't change the nature of this business unless we all agreed we don't all agree so it's not happening and that's it there's no dispute to answer because you can point to that particular provision in the reserve matters schedule yes um and, and similarly with things like you said you know we want to borrow five million pounds well we said that we would put a limit on that uh, unless we all agreed we wouldn't go over that limit. We're not doing it. There's no dispute. So it's a great way of, of nipping disputes in the bud. And there's also um, points like appointing a director or appointing a senior employee on a on a salary or entering into contracts where, say, the, the, the spouse of the director is, like, for example, a cleaning contract to cover all of the offices and that cleaning company is run by the spouse's husband. From a minority shareholder's point of view, your shareholders agreement could give certain named individuals oh, rights yes, to appoint indeed. directors. Yes. Um, we said earlier that you know a, a shareholder doesn't really have much say in the day-to-day running of the business. So they can have a, a right in the agreement that they, they're they allowed to appoint someone to represent their interests on the board. Yes. And without that, the, the, the default ways of appointing a director is either the more than 50% of the shareholders come together and appoint someone or the current directors appoint someone. So if you're a minority shareholder, you, you've got no chance of getting any kind of say, really, in, in how things are run, unless you can get enough of the shareholders together to appoint someone to the board for you. So having that right can, can be really it helpful. It can be really beneficial. And yes, so for so long as you hold shares in the company, you've got the ability to appoint a director to the board, and that's a good benefit. And you don't necessarily have to, appoint a director if you don't want to but you've got the ability and right to appoint someone if things get a bit difficult or if you want a a bit more oversight on the management of the business. The other scenario where shareholders agreements are useful is in restricting so non-compete and restrictions on a business post-termination restrictions now um, you have non-compete provisions in um, possibly almost every employment contract but the difference with placing them in a shareholders agreement is that there is a different bargaining position between shareholders than there is between employer and employee relations. And so on the employment side, they've got to be very much drafted to be enforceable. They've got to really um, be reasonable to protect the business of um, of the company. And not restrict the employee's right to get work elsewhere. Exactly. In a shareholders agreement, they can be 
wider but again you do have to bear in mind that they need to be reasonable or else they will be unenforceable and you've got to think about what impact this person would have if they set up a business down the road um, in competing with the business so you've got you've got to really think through what the effect would be um, which can be more difficult if with an online business say because you're not necessarily opening a shop and selling and trading from that from that shop if you've just got a physical shop that operates in you know in Shrewsbury yes you're your restriction might say, well, you're not going to open up a competing business within five miles of our shop. Um, yes. And you're not going to do that for, let's say, two years after you've left left the business. But where you've got an online company um, that's selling potentially all over the country, mm-hmm. you've got to be really careful in how you put those restrictions together to make sure that they are reasonable. Because if they aren't reasonable, they're not going to be enforceable. It's just not going to be enforceable. Yeah, yeah. absolutely right. Ultimately... What you want to do is get a shareholders agreement in place, put it in the drawer and never look at it again. Never have to refer to it. As I said earlier, just the process of sitting down to work through the points of a shareholders agreement is really helpful when you're starting up a new business. Um, And I would recommend that anyone who is entering into business with a person, with a third party, it could be a stranger, it could be a friend, it could be a family member, they do sit down and talk through these um, questions and um, the questions that we have talked about today. It is certainly something that they should be thinking about. I think it will give people peace of mind. It certainly will. We've kind of mentioned it a couple of times, but particularly useful document if things don't go to plan, if the wheels fall off, because you're, you're just not going to be able to agree a way forward if, if you wait until it gets to that point. Get a shareholders agreement now is, is definitely the advice. And then you don't have to think about that and you can get on with running an, a business which will hopefully be a huge success. Thanks to Gronier and Mark for lending their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases. Speak to you soon. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.